Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. This year's the University of Auckland Festival Forum grappled with the Great Divide. A year of surprises, 2016 saw Britain's vote to leave the European Union and Americans elect Donald Trump as president, leaving many dumbstruck and locked in an us and them tussle across politics, economics, race, gender and geographies. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Susan Faludi, Australian foreign correspondent Stan Grant, UK writer John Lanchester and Māori writer Paula Morris discuss yawning divides and propose possible bridges in a conversation with Andrew Johnston. We hope you enjoy this session. I'd like to welcome you all uh, very warmly to the University of Auckland Festival Forum, uh, which is called The Great Divide. Um, The Writers' Festival is is very lucky, I think, to have the University of Auckland as as a valued partner and a gold sponsor. And it's a privilege for me as a, as a graduate of university to, to chair this session this evening, although uh, you shouldn't hold the university responsible for any foolishness on my part. So my name is Andrew Johnston. Uh, I'm chairing the forum. So just uh, a, another reminder to double check that your phones are off. Uh, and while we do encourage you to share the festival on social media, uh, we also ask that you do so with consideration for fellow audience members. Um, So, I hope you realise how lucky you all are, because I think tonight, before your very eyes, we're going to solve the world's problems. (laughs) And the reason I know we're going to solve the world's problems is that we have four really terrific writers who excel at explaining. Uh, They know not only how to write, but how to listen. How to sift and weigh what they read and what they hear, and how to deliver it to us and lucid, mind-opening prose. They also have in common a really wide range of perspectives that they've um, gained from from having lived and worked in many different countries around the world. So just to introduce um, Susan Faludi. Susan is a Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist and the author of a best-selling book called Backlash, which, Backlash, the Undeclared War Against American Women, which, uh, kind of instantly became a classic feminist text, read very widely, not just by women, but by many men. Um, A book which warned women of every generation not to take for granted the advances that uh, feminism had made. And uh, Susan's most recent book is called In the Dark Room, came out last year. It's a memoir about her, her transgender father and the New York Times named it one of their 10 best books of last year. In between, um, Susan published a remarkable book that has particular relevance for us tonight. It's called Stiffed, The Betrayal of the American Man. It's a book about um, uh, American men who felt really frustrated and alienated by the social and economic forces that that came upon them, especially in the 90s. men who chose to blame others, women, feminists, immigrants, for their problems. Um, So, just to turn to Stan. Um, Stan Grant is one of Australia's most uh, successful and highly regarded journalists with a distinguished 30-year career in the media at home and, and overseas. 
Stan is a Wiradjuri man from Griffith, New South Wales, and he's also one of Australia's leading voices on indigenous issues. And um, Stan wrote a memoir published in 2004 called The Tears of Strangers, which charted how uh, 40 years of political and social changes had affected indigenous Australians. And last year he published a wonderful book called Talking to My Country, which originated as a response to football fans' abuse of the indigenous footballer Adam Goods. It's a, it's a very powerful personal response to racism in, in Australia. And Stan is a presenter and indigenous affairs editor for the ABC in Australia, and also indigenous affairs editor for The Guardian in Australia. Our third um, guest is John Lanchester, who's an award-winning uh, British novelist and journalist. He's a contributing editor for the London Review of Books and also writes for Granta, the New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, and Esquire. John's written four novels, including Capital, which uh, was adapted into a three-part serial for TV. And John's um, non-fiction includes a, a really terrific book, which I think epitomizes the explainer's art. It's a book called Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay. And it's a book that explains the 2008-2009 um, financial crisis incredibly well. Paula, Paula Morris, is an award-winning novelist, short story writer, and essayist. Her origins are English and Māori, Ngāti Wai and Ngāti Whātua, is that right? And uh, Paula's novel, Rangatira, won the 2012 New Zealand Post Book Award for Fiction. Paula spent nearly 30 years outside New Zealand, uh, mostly in Britain and the United States, and uh, came home a couple of years ago. She writes about that experience, um, those, the, the kind of thoughts that happened uh, coming home, in a book called, a memoir called On Coming Home, published, was it published last year? 2015. 2015, yeah. And Paula now teaches creative writing at the University of Auckland, and last year she founded the Academy of New Zealand Literature. So, um, our theme tonight, the, the Great Divide, or um, as I kind of think of it, as I was um, preparing for this, I thought, well, actually, in my head, it's what the hell is happening to the world? <laughs> um, you know, the thoughts that are on everyone's mind last year, um, Britain's voted to leave the European Union. Americans elected Donald Trump as president. A lot of us didn't see any of this coming, and many of us are wondering what on earth is going to happen next. And I think for many of us, the world feels more fragile than it has for a long time. And I guess that the Great Divide, as a, as a theme, really, we're thinking about a lot of different divides. Divides between rich and poor, which have been widening. Um, divides between women and men, which became very uh, marked during the American election campaign. Racial divides, religious divides. Um, divides between elites and ordinary people, and even geographical divides between uh, big cities, small towns, rural, remote places. Divides between young and old, which was very obvious in, in Brexit, I think. So, I guess in my head, you know, one of the big questions is, well, which of these divides are new divides? Which of them have been there for a long time already? And 
you know, which of them are kind of permanent that we just have to deal with over and over again, and which of them can we change, which of them can we fix, or which of them are just um, the pendulum swinging, the political pendulum swinging. Um, there's a quote from, from John's book, Whoops, which I thought makes a nice way in to our discussion tonight. John wrote, one way to reassert a degree of control is to try to understand what's happened. It gives us back a sense of agency. So I think it's a good, it's a good way to, to dive in. So I'm gonna put some broad questions to the panel, and I'm gonna call on in individual writers uh, sometimes. After about an hour or so, we'll have um, time for questions from the audience, and then we'll have a, a little wrap-up right at the end uh, with a final word from our panel members. So I guess the, the question that's on everyone's minds all the time because it's in the headlines every five minutes is uh, the Trump question. And um, when I read uh, Susan's book, um, Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man, it was really remarkable to me that Susan seemed to have um, portrayed Trump voters before anyone even really had characterized them as a, as a, as a force. And also, you've been writing for a long time about Hillary Clinton and the um, misogynism that she's faced, the incredible, uh, the backlash that she's faced during her whole political career. Yeah. Are those, no, were, you, were you less surprised than other people oh, no. about Trump's victory? <laughs> um, no, I was completely surprised. I'm, I'm afraid, um, I'm embarrassed to say that the election night I gathered with some friends and um, uh, the, the friend who was hosting the party had two big jeroboams of, of Prosecco. She said, this is gonna be great. And um, her husband was checking Nate Silver you know, and every five minutes saying, no, no, I can't, you know, everything is terrific. Um, and the, I remember the election uh, results started to come Oh, the exit poll results started to come back at the, at the very beginning, um, and uh, my husband, uh, Russ Reimer, who's here somewhere, another writer at the festival, um, noted, uh-oh, the exit polls are showing that people um, are saying they're voting for, they're looking for a strong, uh, basically a strong man. And I think this was the thread um, that got overlooked throughout the election that um, uh, when uh, surveyors went back and looked, it found that in, in the uh, polls all the way along, the most common trait of, of Trump voters um, more than ideology, more than religion, more than gender, education, it was um, a desire for an authoritarian figure to take, uh, to lead the country, right. um, which is pretty terrifying and, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, nobody uh, among the supposed uh, intellectual elite in the media seem to see it coming. Right. What was the what was the aspect of the of the outcome that surprised you the most? 
Apart from oh, that, that desire for an authoritarian The women, figure. I'm afraid. Sorry? <laughs> the women. The women who voted yeah, for Trump. Yeah, and that, you know, 53% of white women voted for Trump. And, you know, when we break that down, though, it's, it's pretty interesting because the majority um, of white young women voted for Hillary Clinton. The majority of college-educated white women voted for Hillary Clinton, and of course, I mean, large, I mean, 85, 95% of Hispanic and black voter, female voters um, voted for Hillary Clinton. So what the real divide was between non-college educated and college educated voters, it's true of men and women, and it was the biggest divide um, since 1980. And when you look at um, th th this, this big gap did not appear um, in the last two elections of Obama, which suggests perhaps uh, that the, there's a gender dimension to this, that often in the US, um, gender is a proxy for class, because we don't like to talk about class, right? Everyone can grow up to be president, which I guess Trump proves to be true. <laughs> you know? um, and, so, and I think there are a lot of uh, uh, working class women voters who felt because of the way Hillary Clinton was presented over and over again that she didn't understand their interests, that she, you know, because uh, that, or perhaps it was that um, many of them felt that that Trump would be their protector. That was his big theme over and over again. He was going to protect his people. Um, we don't really know, though, because as much as we've studied the angry white man, there's been very, there was very little done um, in the media about angry white women. Uh, although one survey found that women, white women, were actually angrier than any other group, so we should have been paying attention. Yeah, right. That whole question of how people were taken by surprise popped up also with Brexit. And I wanted to ask John, who's written quite a lot about Brexit, uh, I mean, how blindsided were people by, by the Brexit vote? Was it as big a surprise as, as Trump? Well, that's a funny one, because the polls may, said that it was very close. Um, there was a general sense of astonishment and bafflement that actually didn't reflect what the polls were saying. The polls were saying there was you know, very little in it. Um, and yet there was this general kind of consternation and astonishment. I was less surprised by Trump than I would have been mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for Brexit, because it, the Brexit, I mean, I think there's no causal link, you know, no Trump voter changed their mind because of Brexit. I think th there isn't a kind of populist wave in that sense. But I think there is something that elites are missing mm -hmm. and they're failing to pick up and maybe people that they're failing to listen to. Um, so I, I thought it was I thought it was a knife edge. I stayed up for the um, I stayed up for the results, and I was planning to stay up all night. Um, and then the first constituency that comes in, it's always the first one. It's in the northeast. It's Sunderland, and um, it it was because Sunderland was known to skew Leave, and it was thought that Sunderland voting for Leave by about six thousand meant that the race nationally was level. And Sunderland voted to leave by 23,000. Oh. 
Um, and that was the point at which I, I went to bed and uh, <laughs> my wife said, uh, you woke me up, thanks a lot. And I said, well, you know, you'll thank me even more when we leave the EU, which is what we were asking. <laughs> um, uh, but the, one of the things about Sunderland is there's a huge, um, you know, there are pockets of deprivation there, but there's also one of the biggest car factories in Europe. It's, it's, and it's um, Nissan, which is Renault. It's, a, you know, it's an absolute epitome, an example of the internationalized nature of manufacturing and connections with the EU. So if you have that sense, of, even if a place like that mm. is voting for Brexit, um, it's, it's all over. So it, it was surprising, but on the other hand, there were, um, you know, there were plenty of indicators that in, in hindsight you know, made the direction fairly clear. I mean, one of the things, by the way, is that although the Brexit vote was quite close, it's about it's 3.9%, just under 4%. Um, actually, it's less close geographically when you break it down. You know, that's not a 50-50 split everywhere you go. That's a, a brutally stark geographical division. Scotland passionately in favour of staying in the EU. Northern Ireland passionately in favour of staying in the EU. London passionately in favour of staying in the EU. And the big vote going the other way is, is England. Mm. And so that's a, a real fracture between these different, the thing that looks like one unitary identity being, being British, actually starting to crack and break up into these different smaller nationalisms. Yeah, I guess that's one of the things about this theme that I find interesting. That, I mean, those divisions, they were there, but people didn't really see them until the vote. Mm. And I think we've all spent a lot of time looking at maps, haven't we? <laughs> and superimposing maps. Um, just, I mean, for example, with the Trump vote, the, uh, the Rust Belt voters who voted for him, who, who had voted for Obama previously and who voted for Trump. Yeah. And just to call on Stan, in Australia, mm. uh, are there similar sorts of divisions? I mean, I guess mm. what interests me with Australia and New Zealand is we haven't had, you know, uh, megalomaniac um, populists, except for possibly Pauline Hanson. Mm. Um, Who's back? She's back, is she? She's back. Yeah, look, uh, Australia has always had a sort of right-wing populist rump, and it's taken various forms. Hanson has exploited that in the past, and she's ridden the wave of that once again, um, it levels out at around about 10%. But when you have an evenly contested uh, electoral process as we do with broadly the two main parties, Liberal and Labor, that 10% can be decisive. Mm -hmm. So what it has done, it has pulled the two major parties onto her battlefield and they're competing for those disaffected voters. So why do you have a 10% that are broadly in favour or in support of Hanson. As John mentions as well, the geographical issues in England and in the US apply to Australia. It is more regionally based than city based. Um, in some parts of Australia, it is much higher. In others, it's much lower. But you can extrapolate that and say that it's around about 10%. A third of Australian voters have also abandoned the two major parties. And they've gone to a, a collection of independents, Greens, a whole lot of different minor parties. So there is clearly disaffection with the political process, the political status quo. And what we have now is the various political actors trying to 
trying to follow the people. It's the old line from the French Revolution. There go my people, I must go after them and lead them. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they're doing. Um, we saw it in, in France as well with uh, Macron and moving away from the center, the center left and center right, looking for something different. So that certainly exists in Australia. And like the rest of the world, I think Australia's, Australian media has been trying to play catch up. You know, journalists were quick to judge and very slow to correct. And we try to, we try to follow this bouncing ball and make sense of things in real time. And I think that goes to why we are surprised when we see a Trump. We shouldn't be. We should not be surprised. Um, the portents were there. The, the growing wealth gap, the impact of deindustrialization de and the loss of manufacturing jobs that have hollowed out whole classes of people. Um, the globalization and the, the movement of people, the fluidity of borders that has unsettled the idea of the nation state and made some people feel as if they are now strangers in their own country. All of those things have been bubbling along. Um, there's an anemic global growth, slow income growth. You know, these things are part of the mix. And so in those circumstances, whether it is a Russian looking to Putin and his nostalgia for the Soviet Union, whether it is the Chinese looking to Xi Jinping and his talk of the 100 years of humiliation and a return to the glory of China, whether it's Trump making America great again, whether it's you know, Marine Le Pen or whether it's Nigel Farage playing on this nostalgia, what the philosopher Mark Lilla has called the shipwrecked mind, people who see the future and they imagine the future as the debris of a shipwreck you know, from their past floating by them. They're longing for this past that often didn't exist, but it is a nostalgia. And when you put those things together, disaffection, economic um, malaise, a nostalgia for the past, people gravitate to easy slogans and solutions and to the strong man in Trump's case or the popular idea. And it coalesces around a sense of exclusion of some people who are the real people, who are the non-people. You know, all of these factors were there and we were missing them, often in the face of what the opinion polls were telling us with Brexit and also with Trump, who was incredibly resilient, counted out numerous times and was incredibly resilient. Australia is the same. You know, we have, we have written Pauline Hanson off in the past, but that, that nostalgia, that disaffection and the inability, John touched on it, the inability of the so-called liberal elite to actually counter that narrative, to speak to people about their real concerns, what the English philosopher John Gray has called a, a liberal narcissism, that if you don't get it, there's something wrong with you. Um, that's all contributed to it, and all of that mm -hmm. is in play in Australia as it is in other parts of the world. Just to add one point on um, you know, reinforcing what Stan said about people wanting a different option, people wanting something new. It's astonishing that the President of the United States and the President of France are both people who had never stood for election yeah. before. The first election they ever stood for, they're the President of their respective republics. That has absolutely no historical parallel for that. 
And Pauline Hanson makes a play of not being a, politi a politician. Everyone in Australia, all politicians now, are trying to say, well, I'm not really a politician. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, but, but it's fascinating, isn't it, Susan? You identified this in Stift. Um, you identified those people who were starting to feel left out. Uh, and, it, we, and yet we are surprised when we see the political backlash that comes yeah. from those people. Yeah, well, I remember when um, Stift, the book on, on these disaffected men came out uh, and and I was on my little book, book tour and uh, a lot of the journalists who interviewed me said, oh, well, these guys, they're just, I mean, literally, they said, they're just losers. And um, they just need to retool, this is almost an exact quote, they, they need to retool themselves for the internet economy and then they'll be fine. Well, we see how well that worked out. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there's been, you know, just a lot of oblivion. And, and the other thing I remember from uh, the men I was hanging out with in the 90s was just their fixation on Hillary Clinton, who then was first lady, but they all the same language about, you know, how, you know, she, I mean, she was basically the antichrist in their eyes and controlled everything. It was Lady Macbeth, you know, it, and Bill Clinton was just her hand puppet. I mean, the kind of um, uh, uh, rage and fear they had toward her was, um, sh again, should have been a, a warning to what, what was ahead. Yeah. I read, I read a piece you wrote for the uh, New York Times Sunday Review, and I think it was called How Hillary Became Satan. Yes. <laughs> which explained quite well how she'd been demonized right from the start, right. from as soon as Bill Clinton became president. Right. Yeah. Well, Wanted it's a similar thing in Australia with Julia Gillard. Ju Julia yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same kind of language, calling language. her a liar, calling a her um, really? a witch. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, I was mm. just reading an essay about it the other day, thinking, whoa, you could just put in Hillary Clinton and it would be exactly the same. Yeah. Wow. I've spent uh, 10 minutes every day on Twitter reporting people for that kind of hate speech. It's, it's quite enjoyable. I'm, I encourage you all <laughs> to do it. Also, for Lent, I made myself give up Make America Great Again, the hashtag on Twitter, because it would just enrage me so much. Yeah. But just a lot of very vile hate speech, really misogynist mm. towards Hillary. Yeah. And, yeah. and then if you type in Muslim as well, you get to see lots of really lovely views as well on those yeah. topics. People talking quite openly on Twitter about things like, there'll be, you know, internment camps for you soon, Muslims in America, and they think that this is okay now. It's, mm. it's fine to say this in the public, yeah. public spaces. Pretty awful. Yeah. I was gonna ask you, Paula, having spent a lot of time outside New Zealand and coming back here, what, I mean, what stands out here uh, for you? I mean, things are different here in the sense that, you know, we don't have, uh, we have a, a proportional representation system that seems to break things down um, more and force people to talk to each other more, possibly. But, uh, you know, what is the big difference here? Because things are less tense, it seems to me. Yeah, maybe passions don't run so high. I don't know. I mean, don't know what the audience think. <laughs> but, for example, the, uh, in 2008, I became a US citizen so I could at last take part in elections there and Obama was running. 
and uh, we lived in New Orleans, and you know, this whole red state, blue state thing, like everywhere, it doesn't really make any sense. New Orleans voted overwhelmingly for Obama. Louisiana did not, you know, as a state. But we went knocking on doors to tell people to vote. And we started off in the seventh ward of New Orleans, which is a traditional black neighborhood, and the atmosphere was crackling. And we said, if Obama doesn't win tonight, this city will burn. You know, it was a sense that, that it would be burnt down if he did not win. There was that feeling, this huge tension. And I don't know that we would have that, you know, here, do you think? <laughs> Palmerston North will burn. <laughs> if Bill English doesn't get elected, I don't, so. <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing in many ways, you know, we don't have our burning cities, but in other ways, maybe it keeps us just always stuck in a kind of a centrist groove. So that can be a, a good thing or, a, or not a great thing. But yeah, we haven't had any revolutions yet. Yeah. One thing, I mean, I, I left New Zealand 20 years ago. I live in France. But uh, one thing that I found really stark between the mid-80s and the mid-90s was that inequality in, in New Zealand uh, went from being below the OECD average to being well above it. And there was no one out on the streets <laughs> kind of jumping up and down about that. Uh, so it seems, I don't know, do you think there's a certain amount of, uh, not, not passiveness, but just, um, you know, not such a tradition of here, of, of people getting up and saying, you know, this, this is our red line that you're not going to go across? I mean, I grew up in the era of the Springbok tour. Many of you remember those happy days when there were marches down Queen Street pretty much every Friday night. I worked at Marbeck's record shop, and my bosses there, Mr. Marbeck and Mr. Marbeck, would let me take 45 minutes off on a Friday night to go march up Queen Street shouting, you know, one, two, three, four, we don't want your racist tour. We, we all remember that for one reason or another. Um, I don't know that we would have quite such a galvanizing issue again. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I certainly think, coming back to Auckland after all these years away, though I was here a lot, there are, as you say, incredible social divides now. We are many cities, we're not one city. I know we're the super city now. And apparently Wellsford is a suburb of Auckland when I thought it was a town in Northland, but anyway. Um, and according to the Herald, it's one of our most affordable suburbs as well, which is great. It's great. And they have sushi there as well. I drove through it the other day. Um, but I really do notice the social divides of many more people um, sleeping rough and begging. And when I first went to Europe in 1978 as a, as a young person, I saw a beggar for the first time in Germany. My brother and I were fascinated. You know, we wanted to give them all our money. My parents were stopping us. They were very frugal. Um, but now, it's a common sight to young New Zealanders, especially ones growing up here, don't mm -hmm. you think? I mean, in London, you, you're completely used to them. But I remember, when, I remember when it was shocking seeing beggars in London and rough sleepers in London for the first time, and it was in the early 1980s. It was in the first years of Tory government, and, and things got much harder. And that was, a, that was an unfamiliar and, and very shocking sight at the time. And now, of course, you're, it's... Um, you know, pe people don't look twice. And that's a terrible thing too. That's one of the things that, it's one of the, the damages done by um, that kind of inequality and loss in the society. It's the internal thing. It's the fact that you learn to walk past people. 
Because in a big city, actually, you have no choice. You can't fix everything. You can't address everything you do. It's, it's, as we steel ourselves to watch things on the news, we can do nothing about. We, we steel ourselves to walk past our fellow citizens in the street. And that's actually one of the, one of the costs of, of division. It was really interesting, just picking up um, something Paula was saying there, that question about whether you see the same passion in New Zealand and why in Australia there will be a, an appetite for a right-wing populism, but it will probably cap out at around 10%. We don't have land borders. And I think that's a significant factor. Having a border with Mexico, having the borders of Europe, losing control of borders, immigration has become a real flashpoint. It has become one of the, 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 the main issues that the, the sort of populist leaders use to galvanize the support, to demonize someone else. And because we don't have that, we don't feel that crush that Europe and, and the United States does. Surely immigration is a big issue in Australia as well with the detention it's, camps in Nauru and things like that. A, it's a big issue, but it, it, people aren't coming over the border yeah. to us. And Australians are broadly in favour of, of stopping people in the boats and offshore detention. It is, a, it is a bipartisan policy in Australia and it is broadly supported. Um, uh, because we, you know, we don't have that. And that's a, that's a factor that's very much missing. I wanted to ask... Susan, about that Obama factor, something you said before about Obama and the support that he had from people who would have voted for him who are now voting for Trump, and whether there is a sense of disaffection in him and then ultimately in even choosing Hillary as the nominee, that these were squandered years when there was a lot of talk about identity politics and a lot of talk about marriage equality and things like that, while people were actually losing their jobs. Um, people weren't talking about the disaffected white worker, they were talking about Black Lives Matter and saying white people are privileged. Was, there, was that a factor as well, do you think? I don't was know. Was there that disaffection? Yeah, I mean, I mean the truth is people were, uh, you know, white, uh, working class voters were suffering tremendously under Bush um, and uh, Obama um, actually added <laughs> jobs so I, you know I don't quite buy the, the sort of easy equation that was done in the media um, right after a Trump's election of well it's all the fault of focusing too much on identity politics when we should have been talking about class um, uh, you know, I think the two are related and you, can, you could discuss both. Um, so there's sort of a quick push to say, okay, it's the, all the fault of liberals for um, provoking uh, a backlash to, if I can use that word, <laughs> to um, political correctness. And I don't think that was the real issue. I think political correctness was, was you know, kind of a, um, an excuse to, and it was sort of a cover for deeper, um, a, a deeper crisis that, that was not being recognized. Similarly with immigration, I mean, in, in the US, um, illegal immigration was on the decline 
um, in the same period that marks Trump's rise. Um, so, you know, I think there are these flash there are these um, uh, arguments that are made for why people are angry, and I don't think um, it's, you know, it, it, it really is identifying the source of the anger. I think people don't themselves know why they're yeah. angry often. You think, I, mean, I, think one, I think the thing Stan said earlier about um, the thing about borders is really important, though, and I think it touches on something about the, 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 the winning slogan for the Brexit lobby. They come up with this extremely astute slogan, which is, take back control. Now, it's actually nonsense, because no government is fully sovereign, as one of um, Bill Clinton's associates, James Carville, said, you know, when he, when he wanted, if he's going to be reborn, he wanted to be reborn as the international bond markets, <laughs> because they're the people who have all the power. You know, in the modern world, all sovereignty is limited and qualified, and the world is just too interlinked and interconnected. But I think that, that sense of a loss of control and a loss of agency, and maybe loss more generally, that we used to have the ability to decide things, to act, to make change, to change our lives. And I think there's a, a, a strong sense of that having been taken away is a, is a big theme in all these things. And, and in, terms of the, um, in terms of the United States, a thing you see is, um, although the, the unemployment numbers look quite good, I mean, there's this thing... Mitt Romney in 2012 promised to get the unemployment rate down to 6%, and Obama got it down to 5% a year early in 2015, which is you know, just very obviously a success story. But there's a thing hidden within that. There's a, very, there's a nerdy number called the labor market participation rate. Unemployment just shows people who want work and, and can't get it. But labor market participation is people who just aren't looking for a job. They've effectively vanished from the, from the labor market. And that's at an all-time historic low, below 60%, especially among white working-class men. And um, the US, US Bureau of Labor went looking for it, um, looking into the numbers, and came to the conclusion there are 7 million white working-class men just simply missing from the labor force. And, and they went to this quite actually, where are they? What are they doing? It's the kind of thing you wrote about in your book, scrolled forward and gradually getting worse and worse. And it's an absolutely tragic document, the report, because one of the main conclusions to what they're doing is they're playing, they're playing video games. They're literally playing video games. They're watching, on average, 2,000 hours of television a year. That's a, a full-time job. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. And, and half of them are, are taking opioids, addicted to opiate medication. There are 33,000 deaths a year from opioid overdoses. That's a far worse epidemic than the heroin epidemic ever was any before. And this thing of, um, it is a proper pandemic of despair and exclusion and loss. And it's, it's difficult to identify the cause and you can't really kind of explain it away. But there clearly is something happened with an awful lot of people feeling that just life has, has left them, that they're kind of lost. I've, I've seen this in Australia as well. You know, you go particularly to the outer suburbs of the major cities or the satellite towns of the major cities and walk through the shopping mall and you'll see, you'll see there's people and they will go to the shopping mall each day um, not to buy anything, but that is the only social outing and eat bad food 
and you know, play video games, not work. And if they do work, it'll often be two or three part-time jobs, nothing secure, nothing permanent, um, no certainty to raise a family. And our politicians in Australia do not know how to speak to them. The only person who speaks to them with any authenticity doesn't have any answers, but she doesn't even need them, mm -hmm. is Pauline Hanson. And when you ask these people, you know, who do you, what do you see in a politician? Who do you like? Pauline, she speaks like us. She's one of us. Um, Pauline's not one of them. She was a successful independent businesswoman who's had a resilient and successful political career. But she sounds, looks like, and speaks to, to them. And um, there's a whole generation of people now who are, who are lost and they're either not, not looking for work or if at best they're working a couple of part-time jobs um, and uh, they're trapped in this sort of social malaise, self-medication and bad food and, and this listlessness. Mm. Yeah, sorry, Andrew, hasn't there always been? Oh, there, there has been, I there mean, has always been. But, it's, but it is more extreme now, if a, if a, if a car factory shuts down and three generations of men have worked in it and now at best that man is you know stacking shelves for a couple of nights a week at one of the supermarkets um, not only has the job gone but the social structure associated with the job and the self-esteem and the standing and everything else i think now certainly in australia it's it's greater and while our unemployment numbers are relatively low if you work an hour a week you're off the you're off the unemployment list so good God knows what the real number is. Yeah. It's, it's hidden, it's hidden. I'm, I'm curious about, I mean, you know, John said it's, it's difficult to know what the cause is. And for people who feel that they've lost control, it's difficult for them to identify uh, who's taken control away from them. And it, I'm interested in the fact that people don't, often don't make, uh, what, I don't think they make enough of, a, of an effort to try and identify that. Um, you know, I think, I think all of you at some stage have written about uh, how money, uh, economics has kind of taken over from politics in, in, in a lot of ways, and some of these divides are driven by a system that basically is pushing people into precarious lives. Um, so, I mean, does that ring true with you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, when, as we were talking about control um, and feeling of a lack of control and how that, I was thinking about how that played out psychologically um, with the men I was interviewing for Stiff two years ago, and they would talk about being, uh, they, they, were, they would talk about uh, the government has this secret you know, conspiracies. They have black helicopters that are coming, you know, with, uh, you know, it's part of this global um, pact with uh, the powers that be. Uh, they, they, they had this real sense that there was, not only that they had lost control, but that, that there was some, you know, they were trying to locate that control out there in, in the world and they, and they were aware that globalization was playing a role, but, and then they were trying almost to figure out, um, they were trying to name it and identify it um, in this kind of 
crackpot sort of way. Um, but I, I do think very much there's a feeling that uh, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing I can do. I don't, and I can't, don't have control over my life. And also that the the sort of social pact, if I do certain things, then I, mm -hmm. you know, will, um, the, the society will respond in a certain way. If I'm loyal, you know, to the company, I won't be laid off. I mean, all those um, <laughs> ancient agreements that are, have no bearing in the gig economy, where you're supposed to, you know, reinvent yourself every five minutes and have, you know, 25 different insecure jobs in the course of your life. Um, and as much as this is presented as some kind of grand opportunity, most people know this is, you know, uh, just an, a nightmare to traverse. No, no, one, no one seems to have any real answer. And you talk about, you know, economy replacing politics. Um, we still keep talking about, we just had the budget in Australia recently, we're talking about growth projections. We're not going to hit those growth projections. There is no engine of growth in the economy now, um, globally. Paul Keating, who was Australian treasurer during a period of great reform in the 90s and subsequently prime minister, um, was a great supporter of the sort of neoliberal economics, um, but has now pronounced that dead as well because we haven't seen the recovery since the global financial crisis. We haven't. What we have seen is, is a concentration of wealth in the, the 1%. I think the richest 1,500 people in the world, um, their wealth combined is equal to the wealth of the 250 million poorest Americans. 1,500 people equal to 250 Ameri million Americans. Um, our children are going to be poorer than us because we are not having that year-on-year -year growth that's going to build wealth and be able to, to build secure futures for people. And with the, uh, the artificial intelligence and robotics, jobs are going to disappear. The most popular job for an American male is driving some form of vehicle. And those jobs are going to be gone. And they're not going to become computer programmers. So, yeah, we are really facing um, a real crunch, and I think, John, in your book Capital, you dealt with this dislocation, didn't you? People who were fa who were grappling with that those forces in their own lives. Well, I, I got very interested in that, and, and certainly talking to younger people, um, you get this very strong sense that they feel they're living in an economic system rather than a political one. You ask them about political choices they might make, and says, "Well." who's going to help me buy a house? To, to which the answer is, well, actually, no one, really, because they're all, they're all leaving it to the free market. And um, what in, certainly in the, in, the, in the British example, the free market doesn't build enough houses for two reasons. Firstly, um, when there's a shortage, the value of the land goes up, and that's very good for the company's balance sheets. And secondly, when they do build them, they attract international investors, which leads to a kind of prices going up further and a kind of hollowing out, which you see in London. And so this thing, which is the most pressing issue for lots of young people's life, is where might I live? And there's effectively no political answer because the politicians have just left it to the idea that the free market will work in a certain way. And I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of areas that used to be within the domain of politics. They used to be the things that we argued about and voted over and had 
levers that we felt we could pull in relation to it have now shifted over to, well, you know, but that's just the way the world works. And we have it in the European Union. Um, people think of liberal democracy as being one thing. It's a, the, the EU is a, a, an exemplarily liberal institution in many respects, but it's not a very democratic one. Things like control over your own borders, control over your own foreign policy, control over your own economy, you, you know, control over your own employment, banking system, all that. Those are things that you no longer have a vote. Your vote doesn't affect them. And so there's actually, I think, quite a profound shift away from politics being a thing that we can argue about and debate about and reach a, a kind of reluctant consensus because you get more votes than me, to a kind of, there's an, an economic, um, like an over-system under which we all live irrespective of our, our choices and our affiliations. That economics is sort of in charge everywhere and there's nothing we can do about it. And it's quite a narrow set of economic ideas. You think that it is trying, it is starting to reinvent politics a little bit itself, though, that those, um, you know, those new divides that are opening up, uh, for example, in France with uh, the new president, Emmanuel Macron, um, 39 years old, governing right, you know, from the centre, absolutely from the centre. And so you have this, what someone described to me the other day as kind of donut politics with Macron in the middle and everyone else around him. Um, and you see this in some other countries with uh, the whole political landscape being kind of uh, turned upside down. Do you think, do you think we're going through a, a phase of the old distinctions between left and right becoming less relevant? Sorry, Jim, go ahead. I don't know. I mean, you know, I've, I'd have given you pretty long odds on the French electing a banker in his 30s as an ex-president, since they're the most anti-banker people we can possibly, possibly imagine. Um, maybe, I mean, I think it might also be a kind, of, a kind of spasm of despair, everyone giving up on the, you know, they've given up on the right, they've given up on the left, let's, tr let's try, the, try the thing in the middle. Um, I, I haven't seen, like, a really convincing version of the way forward coming from any of the established things. We certainly don't have one in the UK at the moment because we've got the general election campaign going on, which there's no, no, no ideas really in play in it. Australians are actually looking to New Zealand, Paula, as an example of how to do successful politics. That's Thank true. you. You're welcome, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but just to go back to what we were talking about a little bit before, is it, is it ahistorical of us to think that things will always be up and up? Because it's not that long ago when the idea of working class people being able to buy their own house was completely out of control. I'm just thinking about my own grandparents' generation. So my grandparents in the UK and grandparents here, all through the Depression, going through the Depression, insecure jobs, you know, un unable to, to manage, really. Um, my own father in his lifetime went from someone who thought he would have a job forever to someone who lost that job and then went down a job and went down another job and so on. So he was essentially labouring as, as an older person, though he had a trade. And are we looking at just this post-war period that was this, you know, flare, and now it's over? I mean, it's not that long ago, as we know, that our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, signed their marriage certificates with a cross. Do we also have our now golden age of literacy, and now people are opting to be more and more illiterate? Oh, you don't need to punctuate. 
you don't need to spell, you don't need to write complete sentences, you don't need to read. I mean, have we had post-war and now? There's, there's something to that. There, there, we got lulled into this belief that there would be unending growth. And we had that, and we had that for much of the 20th century. Before that, we didn't. You're right, you know. Before mm. that, the world did not have year-on-year -year growth and this accelerated growth, people leaving school and universal health care. We didn't have that. Mm. Um, the 20th century maybe was an aberration in that sense. And what we're seeing now is a hollowing out of that and waiting for if there is going to be another avenue, another engine of growth, waiting for where that will come from. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think there's, there's something in that. We got used to something that was not sustainable. Can, can I just make one point about that, though? Because the thing is, our economies in the developed world have largely stagnated, but we've also seen in the last 25 years what you could argue is the most extraordinary economic achievement in the history of the world, which is half the world's population no longer living in poverty from 40% to below 20% living in poverty. That's an economic equivalent, an economic achievement, the equivalent of which the world has never seen before. It's far bigger than anything in the Industrial Revolution because the numbers are bigger. These are billions of people no longer living in abject poverty. Um, Is it mainly because of China? Mainly because of China and, and, Asia, and Asia and India. Um, and the figures in Sub-Saharan Africa are still bad, but it's still extraordinary progress. The maternal and infant mortality rate has halved over 25 periods, the 25 years of the Millennium Development Goals. Again, you could argue there's never been an achievement in human history like that. And I don't know if you remember, there used to be those, those ads, those um, Live Aid things, where you know, celebrities would click their fingers and say, yeah, every time I click my fingers, a child dies, you know, um, pro prompting someone in, uh, in Ireland famously to shout at Bono, well, stop fucking doing it, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, which admittedly is a good point. Um, but you, you know, you, you could click your fingers every five seconds now for a child's life saved. It's, it's, I think it's 14,000 lives a day, children not dying because of this improvement. And that's an astonishing, astonishing, astonishing feat. And maybe the, the price of it has been the people at the top getting richer, the bottom sort of 20, 30% of the world getting poor a lot quickly. And broadly speaking, the working and middle class of the developed world, their lives stagnating. And that's who we're now hearing from in this massive electoral backlash. But that doesn't, if you put it like that, maybe it doesn't sound like something that, maybe we can fix that, actually. Yeah. But I think there are limits to that. You know, I, I reported in China for a decade, and I saw that incredible transformation. China went from an urban country, from a rural country to an urban country. And there is still a lot of growth left in China because there is still a lot of urbanization still to come. But China is going to very quickly hit what we've experienced in the West, and that is a middle class with middle class expectations and looking for that cheaper labor. And they're not, they're not doing the factory jobs, and they're missing out as well. The other thing about China that's really fascinating is that, you know, before China's rise, it, the, the orthodoxy was that China's economic rise would lead to political liberalization. And before, it was always 
the OECD and, and the OECD liberalism being imported to other countries, whether it was Korea or Japan or whoever, China was opposite to that. China was an authoritarian capitalism. And China was saying, actually, no, you know, we will engineer this and manufacture this and hold on to this authoritarian political rule at the same time. And that's a very different model, political and economic model for the world. It hollows out the argument for the continuation and continual strength of Western liberalism, because there is an alternative. Um, if you're in Russia and if you're in Africa and you're looking for this sort of alternative, there, there is one. Susan, you know when, like to go back to Make America Great again, <laughs> when, do they, when do you think they mean it was great before, exactly? Right. Right. Like, is it the 80s, is it, or is right. it before, is it before the civil rights movement? <laughs> is it the 50s? When, when was it? Do you know? Well, I... Yeah. Yeah, I miss, I miss that moment. <laughs> but I think this goes back to what you were saying about the, you know, the mid-century, you know, the 50s being, and particularly in the US, that's, you know, this is, in the American imagination, everything has always been, uh, you know, uh, uh, the leave it to beaver, you know, June Cleaver, you know, wife at home, and, and the, uh, the suburbs and um, everyone. And the black people at the back of the bus. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, that I think is, the, that the fantasy of that is what um, Trump supporters are craving. It's, you know, uh, many of whom never actually had that life. It's, you know, um, but, you know, it's not just the U.S. I mean, we're, <laughs> I, I spent a, a lot of time in working on my last book about my father because my father is from Hungary. I spent a lot of time in Hungary. And it, um, the same kind of thing is going on in Eastern Europe. Um, in Hungary, I mean, talk about a country that has borders. I mean, it feels that Hungarians feel that, that, that People have run across, that Hungary is just a place to cross through. Um, and so long before Trump came up with the idea of building the beautiful wall, um, the uh, right-wing uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban built not one but two 13-foot uh, uh, razor wire fences um, across the southern border to keep out uh, refugees with the argument that the refugees were, you know, taking away Hungarian jobs. Um, meanwhile, the, I mean, the real problem was that, um, uh, you know, with this shift um, uh, into a you know, incredibly chaotic and not very workable, um, uh, you know, post-capitalist system, that Hungarians uh, were fleeing the country themselves as one of the uh, newspapers uh, put it, we have become a country of emigrants. Um, so again, you see this, this kind of switcheroo where there's the, an actual problem and then it's redefined as, you know, as a feeling of invasion and that this, this can all be solved by um, building walls, by turning back the clock, by retreating into some kind of fantasy. And it's, 
as absurd as it is, it's um, very desirable to a, a certain critical mass of voters. And didn't Viktor Orban have very different politics after the he war did. came down, yes. didn't he? he yeah, did. he was liberal. So he's well, completely changed. liberal. He was libertarian, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, so it's very similar. <laughs> Trump's to, had very different Trump. politics. Yes, no, they're, yeah. Um, yeah. John's I, uh, they're big fans some. of each other, Trump yeah. and yeah. Obama. But you know, that, that, that first point you made about where is this new way of bridging the left and right divide, it's not even that binary anymore. It's not as clearly defined as a left and right. Um, a lot of it is, as John touched on too, it's geographical as well. There was a statistic I saw just the other day that in the United States, um, you know, there has been this real change in the urbanization of the United States and suburbs that are hollowed out and people who are moving to, and this real, um, this real divide between the wealthier and the poorer. And in the urban areas, crime, m murder crime, murder has dropped by around 17%. But in the suburbs where the people who were previously in the inner cities have been pushed out to, guess what? Murder rate has jumped 17%. It's just swapped. It's geographical as well, and it's not as simple as left and right. I, I really fear the failure of politics now is that the, those who believe, I believe in, in a liberal, progressive, cosmopolitan, interconnected world that has been good for so many of us and still potentially can be, rather than argue persuasively for those, and we're seeing this in Australia, for those values, it is abandoning the values to try to play to the base instincts and fear and nostalgia and to, to placate that populism rather than to challenge it. So in Australia, we have 90% of Australians who want no truck with Pauline Hanson. But rather than say, that's the centre we need to speak to and we need to be persuasive and listen to the concerns of people who may be, uh, who may be supportive of what Hanson represents, it is, let's placate that. Let's send out the dog whistles about Australian values, which are white Australian male values and you know the little whisper here that you know if she's wearing a hijab she's not really an Australian if someone you know we're being overrun by Muslims apparently and they're two percent of the Australian population but rather than speak to the values that 90 percent of Australians genuinely hold and that inclusiveness and that fairness and that tolerance it is playing to the, the worst elements of the fringe out of fear of losing those voters rather than being able to try to speak more broadly. It's not a left or right anymore. It's much more complicated than, than that. Yeah. So stand up, if every country has its values and we have our shadow as well. I think with America, I love living in America because you do often have this feeling like you can be anything you want to be. But the bad side of that is then the disdain for people who do not make it. Yeah. Which you see in the healthcare, uh, you know, well, why can't you afford to have insurance? If you can't afford it, why should we pay for it for you? But in Australia, what is the shadow? I mean, we, talk, we were joking in the, in the other room about the, the lucky country, unlucky lucky for some, unlucky for others. But what, what is the big shadow in Australia, do you think? Oh, look, you know, Australia is a, and I'm speaking very generally here, but, um, 
it is a country where people often come to leave history behind. You know, it is a country of immigrants. It's people who are looking for what they're going to build rather than what they've left behind. Um, we wear history very lightly and very suspicious of it. We make a fetish of certain aspects of history which play to the sort of nationalism and the Anzac tradition and things like that, which are very real in the, in the sense of giving people a, a, a belief in who they are, a myth to live by. That myths are important. But Australia, I think, more broadly, is very wary of history and, and grappling with history. And speaking as an Indigenous person, and looking, I wrote about these things, you know, what Bill Stanner, the Australian anthropologist, once called the great Australian silence. We don't really want to talk about how we took the country. There, are no, there is no treaty. The only Commonwealth country with no treaty with Indigenous peoples. Um, we don't really want to talk about, we, it's okay to acknowledge the Māori Wars, but we don't talk about the frontier wars in Australia, where there were long-running battles, legitimate battles fought by Aboriginal people who resisted colonisation. Um, Australia still, I think, wants to imagine that the next day is the new day and doesn't really want to, um, want to grapple with the darker aspects of history. It's, it's really challenging as an Indigenous person because on the one hand, you, you want to be able to, to, to fully uh, acknowledge the past, but you also don't want to be trapped by it and to live with the, the sense of victimhood that can come by endless grievance. And as a reporter, reporting in different parts of the world, I've seen what endless grievance and an allegiance to an unending association with history can do to a country, Catholic, Protestant, Sunni, Shia, Hindu, Muslim, India, Pakistan, North and South Korea, Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, Israel, Palestine. You know, when people hold on to unending grievance that is formed out of history, that can be damaging as well. In Australia, we haven't really necessarily even got to that point. It's just a, still a, a forgetfulness. That's a real divide in Australia. I thought, I thought it would be good, I mean, um, we've described the world's problems <laughs> quite well. What kinds of solutions uh, can you see to some of these, especially, I think, you know, say if I was to play devil's advocate and say capitalism is great because it creates wealth, but uh, the response is, is often now, but it's, it actually widens inequalities, it dumps a whole lot of people. Uh, what is, the, what is the middle way that, you know, as Stan has pointed out, you need to have a certain amount of growth to keep things going? What is the middle way that lets people have decent lives at the same time as, as there being a, you know, growth and so on? Well, um, having spent a fair amount of time in Sweden and having just come back from Sweden We all should recently. move to Sweden. I'm sorry? We all should move yes, to Sweden. Yes, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> or any of the Scandinavian countries. But I mean, they invented the middle way. Uh, and one of the, uh, well, if, if you talk to Swedes now, they say, oh, it's, it's awful and we've gone to the right, but their right is <laughs> to the left of where, <laughs> the left of the left of, um, of the US. Um, but one of the key, uh, factors is they've kept income, uh, they were committed to keeping income inequality down, um, that the 
you know, it's a very high tax rate that pays for universal health care, that pays for quality child care, that pays for higher education. Um, and uh, they've got a thriving um, capitalist sector as well. So we, we could, might do well to revisit the Scandinavian model. Um, but, but politically, though, the Scandinavian model, they don't have very multicultural societies. They just don't. And in fact, now there are problems in Denmark and in Sweden and Norway because of the immigrants. That's, you know, and resistance to people who are not part of quite a homogenous way of life. And we all live in countries that are not homogenous, that are just not, they can't be. The rise in all of these, in all of the Scandinavian countries of a populist. Um, you know, populist parties. I think, I think, Paula, you're really right. And I, I think that one of the real challenges of the age is that, John touched on this before, the idea of national sovereignty. When we do live in a globalised world, and that is, we can't, it's not King Canute, we're not going to turn back the tide, um, but what is the role of the nation state? What are the boundaries and the limits of national sovereignty? Um, identity, social cohesion? Is it just an you know, open borders policy where anyone can come and what does that do to a society? You know, we have to be really honest and have a real discussion about this because these are, these are where the fault lines lie. The nation, the nation state in a globalized world and the sense of people who are uh, who, to have a sense of belonging and identity and allegiance to, to country, as well as being part of, of a globalised economy. You know, that, that tension is a really unresolved one. Mm. Well, we better finish there because time's up. Thank you so much for all your contributions. Whether, whether or not we solved the world's problems, I think you'll agree with me, this has been a very rich discussion. I'm going to be passing on our recommendations to President Trump. <laughs> Um, so, I wanted to just let you know that each of the writers here is, is going to be appearing in other events at the festival. Susan Faludi will be in a, a session called In the Dark Room on Saturday in, in this theatre at 4.30 and in a free reading session on Sunday in the Limelight Room at, at noon. Stan will be talking with Carol Hirschfeld on Friday at 11.30 in the morning in the lower NZI room in, in this building. Um, John will, will be in a free salon session with Stella Duffy on Saturday in the Heartland Festival room in, in the square here at 9.30 p.m. and a session called Capital Times on Sunday at 4.30 p.m. And Paul is chairing uh, a session with Paul Beattie uh, called The Sellout, uh, about his, his novel The Sellout, on Friday at 2.30 p.m. in this theater. She's also chairing um, the event at which uh, Dame Fiona Kidman is, becomes the 2017 Honoured New Zealand Writer in this theatre at six on Sunday. And last but not least, Paula is presenting a session called 1001 Nights in Auckland on Saturday in the upper NZI room at 4.30 p.m. Just, just to say, it's, um, it's high school kids from South Auckland who've rewritten Alibaba set in Auckland. So please come. 
Okay. So the bookseller will be open out at, is, is open out in the foyer, and our guests tonight will be able to sign books out there. So finally, just a huge thank you to Susan Faludi, Stan Grant, John Lanchester, and Paula Morris uh, for a wonderful <laughs> evening. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.